I knew that I'd never been willing to go to any lengths to stay clean, that I'd, the few meetings I'd attended, I saw that it, people were clean. I believed they were clean. And I modified what I was willing and not willing to do. And I'd never really tried. And I thought, you know, you are going to die if you don't try this. But, like, really try it. And, you know, and so when I entered recovery, I really, um, I'd never tried to do anything as hard as I tried to do this. Like, if I'd applied myself in school, in career, in anything, the way I applied myself in my first year of recovery, my whole life would have been different. (laughs) That was Patty Powers, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, O. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Share Podcast. And today we have Patty Powers joining us on the show. And what an amazing story you guys are about to hear. Uh, we were on a little bit of a time crunch, so we had to try and condense the interview. So you'll notice, you may or may not notice that the, at the end of the interview, we had to kind of quickly wrap it up. But man, thank God she was able to tell her entire story because it is going to blow your mind. She is yet another miracle of this program that regardless of how bad things get, no matter how far down the rabbit hole you find yourself, once you find recovery and start applying yourself, HP just reaches down, picks you up, and gives you a life beyond your wildest dreams. And something else very cool about this interview is for the first 20 minutes or so of this episode, we segue and start talking about Patty's meditative practice, which is phenomenal. She meditates 40 minutes a day, and you'll understand how she does it and the techniques she uses. It was fascinating. This whole interview was absolutely fascinating. So let's dive into Patty's story. But first, a message from our sponsor, Organifi. Organifi is an organic superfood supplement that takes 30 seconds to make with no blending, no juicing, and no cleanup. Organifi is a coconut and ashwagandha-infused green juice that is gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, vegan, and absolutely delicious. My wife and I drink it every single day. We absolutely love it. We've noticed a significant difference in reduced stress, in improved digestion, improved mental clarity, and it boosts our energy levels. So not only is it organic and upgraded with 11 superfoods, if you order now, you're going to get 20% off your order by using promo code SHARE, S-H-A-I-R. So go to the Organifi website, www.organifi.com. Organifi is spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I. And make sure to put in your promo code SHARE, S-H-A-I-R, and get 20% off your order today. And guys, a quick reminder to please remember to subscribe to the Share Podcast. If you have an iPhone and you listen on iTunes, make sure to click subscribe when you listen to the show. You're going to get a brand new episode downloaded onto your phone every week with a little reminder that lets you know that the Share Podcast just launched its latest episodes. Plus, it's the best way to rank on iTunes. When you subscribe to a show, it increases your ranking in iTunes 
And my goal is to have the Share Podcast as the number one recovery resource and podcast in iTunes. So please subscribe. And while you're at it, leave us a five-star rating and review so I can read it on the next episode of the Share Podcast. So normally at this time, I read one of the new iTunes reviews that the Share Podcast has received. Uh, But since last week, we didn't get any new ones. I'd like to take this opportunity to plug a website called Pets for Vets. Uh, My wife and I are huge, huge dog and cat people. Uh, We have both dogs and cats. And uh, our life would not be the same without them. Of that, there is absolutely no question. The healing power of animals is unparalleled for many of us. I also know that there are a lot of members in the Share Podcast private group that are ex-military who have suffered through depression and PTSD. And one of our members that has suffered through PTSD is Joe Bono and brought this non-for-profit outreach program to my attention. I urge you to go to the website and check out the video that's on the homepage. And uh, if you don't cry when you watch that video, you're a tougher person than I'll ever be because what they're doing gives you a rare opportunity to help not only U.S. military veterans, but you're also helping save these dogs' lives that are going to be euthanized. These are not purebred dogs or dogs that come from pet stores. They're dogs that are in shelters and that are going to be killed. So this is what Pets for Vets is helping to do. Their goal is to help heal the emotional wounds of military veterans by pairing them with a shelter dog that is specially selected to match his or her personality. Professional animal trainers rehabilitate the dogs and teach them good manners to fit into the veteran's lifestyle. Training may also include desensitization to wheelchairs or crutches, as well as recognizing panic or anxiety disorder behaviors. It's a total win-win. Needy shelter dogs receive a second chance at life while giving our returning troops a second chance at health and happiness. The bonds of friendship formed between man and animal have the power to ease the suffering of our troops when they return from overseas. Pets for Vets is a concrete way to thank U.S. military veterans for their service. So if you'd like to help in any way, then just go to this website and check it out, www.petsforvets.com. You can volunteer, you can donate, you can contact them and see if there's some way you can participate in furthering this cause. I absolutely love what this foundation is doing, and this is my way of helping out by spreading the message. HP, baby. And speaking of donations, I just want to thank everybody who has been sending in their donations ever since Darren posted in the Share Facebook private group urging the other members to donate $5 a month. We have had a significant increase in donations, and I just want to thank you guys so much. It's making a huge difference. It's keeping the Share podcast growing and thriving and getting closer and closer to being fully self-supporting. So keep those donations coming. All we need is $5 a month from 1% of our listeners to be fully self-supporting. So if you'd like to donate to The Share Podcast, go to the website, www.thesharepodcast.com. Remember to spell share, S-H-A-I-R. You'll find the donate button on the top right corner of the website, or you'll see donate banners throughout the website. Click on any of those and donate $5 a month to The Share Podcast today. Now a quick message from Transitions Daily and then on to the show. 
Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Hey, Patty. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Omar. I am very excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? I feel pretty good. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So, folks, today we have Patty Powers joining us on the Share Podcast. And Patty is a certified recovery coach, writer, and a public speaker on addiction and recovery. She was featured on A&E's miniseries Relapse in 2011 and is currently writing a book. Uh, but 28 years ago, Patty was a homeless drug addict living in an abandoned building who on December 10, 1988, was admitted to a treatment facility located outside of New Orleans for heroin addiction, cocaine, and met- methamphetamine use. My God, I should be, you know, meth and meth use. <laughs> well, you are from California. It <laughs> never went away from California. It made a comeback on the East Coast, but it never left California. <laughs> it sounds like you had one heck of a torrid affair with drugs and alcohol. You know, just hearing your introduction and the way it like paints this picture, I know it's all true, but as I'm sitting like on my comfy bed (laughs) (laughs) in my apartment, it seems like, I know it was true, but it seems so weird that that was my life. (laughs) It is hard to believe. Trust me. Trust me, you know, I'm about to celebrate 14 years and I still have a hard time believing the things that were going on in my life. It seems like it was a a different person, another life, something else, because life has gotten so good, right? Well, the thing that's crazy is during that period, and I do remember the darkness of it, when I was in it, it felt like performance art, like it felt like the chapter of my life that I'd be talking about one day or, or like a scene from a movie. It didn't even feel real when I was in it, but I mean, I know that's how I survived it. Do you know what I mean? But I remember being in it and thinking, I know this is really sad and really tragic and it's not a moment like this is real and it could get worse. And I don't know what worse would look like besides someone breaking into my abandoned building and slaughtering me. Like (laughs) I just, that looks like the next thing in line as, as um, police helicopters were going over the yard because people were, had found this spot and were starting to creepy crawl around me. And I had to walk up a fire escape at night to get there. And I mean, it was in Crenshaw and eighth street in the 80s. So it was pretty sketchy. But while I was in it, I didn't Mm -hmm. feel that afraid. Because it felt like a movie. You know, it Mm. felt like, wow, this is crazy. You went from this backyard in a suburb of Toronto, to this, like, your dreams have come true. You (laughs) lived that movie, you lived that life that was like a movie that you were determined to have, you just had no idea how painful it was going to be. Yes, an absolute horror film. A horror film, but, you know, like when you're a kid and you're watching um, watching films, you know, whatever, whatever. I was an only child for the first 12 years of my life, and, and my life was pretty crazy because my parents were really young, and my father was an alcoholic who was, um, you know, responsible. 
right, and not violent, but just a guy in his 20s who wasn't ready for the responsibility he had, really, and an alcoholic. So it was um, very chaotic. And my mother, who'd never been around alcoholism in her life, was you know having nervous breakdowns and on a lot of medication to deal with it. So all I had really was all the media that were showing these bad people on drugs, you know, they didn't look that bad to me. <laughs> and, and this sort of anti-establishment, everything's a hypocrisy. They romance a lot of it. They romance a lot of it. That's the problem. Yeah. Well, that kind of also was how I felt looking at how adults behaved in my house. You know what I mean? So, so I was seeing, um, leave it to beaver, Mm-hmm. which I thought there's no way families are like this. And then I was seeing, you know, all the kind of easy rider <laughs> type movies and, and Lady Sings the Blues and Lenny about Lenny Bruce. And that felt truthful. And the other stuff felt like fiction. It felt authentic and real. And um, it gave me something to identify with before I knew exactly what I was identifying with. And then it also let me know that there was a world beyond the schoolyard that I had. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it kind of opened up doors. And, you know, for whatever reason, it, uh, I had a really interesting, don't look back and go, I wish I wouldn't have done this or I wish I wouldn't have done that. I'm pretty much a product of my time. And the uh, fortunate part is that I got clean. Yes. The unfortunate part is that I've experienced a lot of loss because a lot of people die in that world. Yes. But fortunately, you didn't. So before we get too further into that... um, Sorry. No, no, no. That's fine. That's fine because I want to save all this. Um, But as uh, before we dive into your story... Um, tell us a little bit, because I know you're super busy um, right now working on some projects. What's your daily routine look like right now, um, including whatever projects you're working on at the moment? <laughs> oh, my God. What does my daily routine look like? You might not have one. <laughs> well, it's hard to have one because everything changes according to um, how many clients I'm working with or or what type of work I'm doing with them. Because my life, if I'm on tour with a band, say, there is no patty life in there. Right. <laughs> except except a few minutes to get my emails. But we, like I'll bring the self-care that I n- normally do into their routine. So I'm still, I'm not sliding on my self-care. Right, right, right. Now, when you say uh, touring with a band... What exactly are we talking about here? The clients that I work with can be, you know, it can be anything from people who are high functioning, who've gone to rehab that need extra support when they get home, um, where we might Skype a couple times a week and, and work with email. And then there are people I work with who, you know, will have me move in with them instead of them going to rehab. Okay. You know, I mean, I've gone on tours with bands of people who were like, either in early recovery or needing to get clean right when the tour is starting. Oh, I got you. I got you. Oh, man, that's got to be interesting. That's a word for it. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be as PC as possible. <laughs> Just imagining being on a tour with a early recovering addict 
who is also in a band, you know, that's got to be something special. Well, actually, things like that are um, they're really satisfying. person has made the decision, not if it was made for them by someone else, because I, I really don't even take on clients where the decision to get clean was made by someone else. Right. Um, but, you know, if they made it, they are willing to do, you know, whatever I come up with, you know, because that's what they've hired me for. You know, they're not hiring me as a personal assistant, you know, <laughs> or, or as a, or as a recovery companion, who's just going to be there to, to go to meetings with them. You know, they're hiring me to, go through the thaw to deal moment by moment as, you know, panic attacks come up or, you know how it is, the second day clean, the second night clean, you're yeah. crying about money, money your parents gave you for your birthday you spent on Coke in 1986, you know, but suddenly you need to cry about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So it's, it's much more hands-on but then it's great because you have every reference point with them from day one so you know when it's like three weeks into the tour and they're enjoying themselves on stage for the first time and you see they are more comfortable and not going through the motions like they were on stage two weeks ago Right, right, absolutely. Which is part of, I, I would assume, the um, the rewards, right? The the rewards of 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 doing what you're doing, because you know you get to practice this, or you get to be a coach um, in a practical application, in a day to day practical application. So it's not a you know theory and practice. Right, like it's nothing like sponsorship. Because people often think that it's the same thing. I mean, it's really bizarre. People will, you know, that they'll be hating on me on social media. Oh, yeah? Without ever asking me what it is exactly I do. <laughs> <laughs> Bill W. must be rolling in his grave while you get a paycheck for sponsorship. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Look at my website. <laughs> Yeah, and then yeah. ten minutes, ten minutes later, they're like, "How exactly do you get into something like that?" <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely beautiful. I love it. All right. So then, yeah. So it's very difficult for you. So then, how do you maintain your own personal recovery routine? Well, I I build into if I'm with a client full time, I build my routine into their life because it's pretty much what they need to do too. You know, I might have to take it down a few notches. Like if I have someone who, you know, three minutes on an elliptic and they feel like they've worked out, <laughs> I'm like, damn, I really wanted to do another 45 minutes. <laughs> but, you know, that's part of the trade-off. If I accept a job that's 30 days, I know it's not going to be all about me. Right. But I have a pretty good um, foundation in my recovery and in you know, years of having, you know, my regular practices that if I have to miss a little bit of time, it doesn't throw me off too much. You know, I've been doing it for a long time. Right. I, mean, I wouldn't, I don't know how people hear sometimes at meetings and they have two years clean or three years clean. And they're talking about, I work in recovery and I've been, you know, out of town with a client and I'm, and I'm kind of shocked because 
at two and three years, you really still need to have the focus all on you. You know, like you're not as far as it, your disease wants to tell you you are. <laughs> correct. Correct. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There, there, there is definitely uh, a time element and experience and step working uh, before you get to a certain point where it's it's a lot easier to really compartmentalize your life into different facets and create that balance so that you can do multiple things, including, you know, balance your recovery. Um, I, you know, another thing that's also very important is, is maintaining that relationship with your higher power. Do you have like a spiritual routine that you do in the mornings or on a regular basis, uh, especially with all the moving around? Yeah, no, I meditate 40 minutes a day. Wow. 40 minutes a day. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and if something happens and I and I can't get to it, like I feel the difference. And I work out regularly. So, I mean, those two things manage stress and kind of keep me grounded. Right. But meditating is meditating is a whole other trip. I mean, my experience and I know it's a lot of people's experience, you know, if you're in a 12-step program, you get to the 11th step and you kind of skip over it. Like you do a little bit. Maybe you listen to a couple meditation tapes. Maybe you meditate like for a week. <laughs> the whole time you're meditating, you're thinking you're doing it wrong. So you yep. spend like the whole 11th step searching for the right meditation rather than starting a practice. <laughs> and then you just go, wow, this feels really good. And then it's the first thing to go. And then, you know, five years later, you're in a meeting and somebody with the same amount of time is like, you know, I never really got into meditating and I'm started and it, these are the benefits. And then you go, oh, geez, I should do it too. And then you start again, and it feels really good. And then you get busy and it's the first thing to go. You know what I mean? Yes. Sometimes people get into it and start a practice when they're newcomers and they keep it the whole time. I don't know a lot of them, but you know, I know some people do, but I think it's something a lot of people come to later in recovery, like when you start getting really serious about it, which is crazy because the benefits are instant. <laughs> but, you know, why give up all that suffering so quickly? You got to stay in the drama. Yes. Till you can handle having good feelings without wanting to explode. Yeah, I totally. Yeah, I totally need to hear this. I totally need to hear. So. How how long have you been doing a 40-minute meditation? Because I know you had to build up to it. No, actually, I um, I meditate twice a day for 20 minutes. Okay, okay, all right, gotcha, gotcha. That, well, okay, that sounds, that sounds very feasible. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I did all different kinds of meditation. I was doing breathing meditations, and, you know, I'm working with clients and guiding them through meditations, and, you know, I had pretty regular practice going and then but you know when I had about years clean how many about 12 okay I kept feeling like there was you know I don't want to endorse any particular thing and I feel like this particular thing got some new marketing strategy in the last few years which kind of annoys me so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name it but um you know there was something from early recovery on that I wanted to do but it cost quite a bit to take the, to learn it, which I thought was stupid because meditation is free and you can learn it anywhere. But something inside of me thought that this was going to be right for me. And I don't know why, you know, I was doing all different types of meditation and, and it was fine. 
but I felt like something was like, this is right. So I went and I did, I went to a, one of the free check it out things. And it was early September, 2001. And I was about to sign up to take it. And I said, you know, let me just sit on this for a week or so. And then 9-11 happened and the office had been right down near there. So needless to say, I didn't take that class. And then, you know, 9-11 happened and life was kind of crazy for a while. And then a few years went by and I started thinking, I really want to do this. But to make a commitment that takes place over a couple of weekends is hard because I never know when I'm going to be pulled out of my life if I take on a new client. So I kept having that as a reason why it's not the right time to do it. And then I was with a client and I said, why don't we just do this thing? (laughs) So we went and did it. And it was in a different state because I thought this is the only way I know I'm going to be in one place long enough to do this. Right. And so we, we both did it and I've been doing it ever since. And, and for me, it's just the easiest way to do it. You know, it, in terms of, um, logic like it was very easy for me to understand why I was doing what I was doing in the practice Mm -hmm. so it was really easy and what I noticed which you know I always I always tell clients and friends in recovery and anybody will listen (laughs) (laughs) is that when you do something that makes you feel good whether physically makes you feel good or mentally makes you feel good. Whether that's eating healthy, whether it's exercising, whether it's meditating, whether it's getting fresh air, you know, whatever it is that makes you feel good, not who makes you feel good or what shopping makes you feel good. Not like outside stuff, but like things you're doing for yourself. Your body likes it. So when you don't do it, your body reminds you to do it, mm. if that makes any sense. Like you, you just need to get it started, and your body and mind will like take over to keep it going, unless you get really willful and you don't listen to it. Well, I th- I think when you do become willful, it kind of creates that unmanageability in your life or anxiety, or you feel it in various ways where the thought comes. I sh- I need to meditate. Something like that, right? Right, except, you know, if you have the disease of addiction and you've missed it a few days and the anxiety's building, when you think, I should meditate, it's going to say, tomorrow. <laughs> 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 You'll do it tomorrow. You're too busy today. Right. Now, do you do a guided, do you do a guided meditation or do you do 20 minutes of silence? I do a mantra meditation. Okay. Which means I, I sit for 20 minutes and I have a mantra sort of spinning effortlessly in my mind, which is the thing that stops you from falling asleep when you get relaxed. <laughs> if you're just doing a breathing meditation and you get really relaxed, your brain doesn't have anything to do. That's why you can nod off in a meditation. <laughs> yes. Whereas like a mantra, it's just kind of like having something sort of spinning in the background Mm -hmm, that you're not even that's as natural as breathing like once you start doing it you don't even have to think about it and that kind of gives your brain something to do so it's engaged over there (laughs) 
and then you kind of just drop down. And what I notice is that if I'm under a lot of stress or just whatever, call it stress, doesn't, you can be under a lot of stress without anything going wrong in your life. It's just, you know, that in the old days, they'd say, did you wake up on the wrong side of the uh-huh. bed today? Yeah. So if I, if there's a lot of stress going on, I set a clock. I have this thing on my phone called Big Clock. It's an app. So I can have it beside me and that the clock face shows in large numbers the whole time. You don't get a screensaver. Your phone doesn't turn off, you know. And um, while I'm meditating, I just will glance to see if my 20 minutes is up because it's not good to have an alarm or anything like that shock you out of a meditation. You want to be able to give yourself a minute or two to come out of it after your time is up. Mm -hmm. So if I'm under stress, I can notice that I might check the clock five times in that 20 minutes. Mm. And then there are other times where I feel like it's just been, you know, maybe six or seven minutes and I'll look and my time is up. You're deep in it. Like, like it went so fast. So I know I dropped down, you know, but, but even if you're just feel like you're just thinking the whole 20 minutes, what's really happening is it's a chance for your brain and your body to rest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the way our brain releases stress is through thought because the brain is the search engine. It never stops. I mean, the search engine is on even when we're sleeping, just sort of meditation. I, I look at meditation like when you think you're doing it wrong because you notice you're thinking a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is just like when at, for no reason that you know of your computer fan goes on to cool down. That's interesting. So, so like when your brain is sort of spinning during that meditation, as long as you don't get all invested and you're at 1130, but then I have to get out, I'll have 15 minutes to get ready to go to my next, as long as you don't get involved in it, you just notice, oh, I'm thinking about that. And then you just go back to your mantra or your breathing or whatever you're doing. Your brain is going to just spin out like that a little bit, but that's just like your cooling fan. It's doing you good. It's just if you get involved in it, then you're just thinking. You're not meditating. <laughs> That's that is a that is great because that I mean we've we've even had a couple of episodes where we discuss meditating because a lot of my listeners and the ones that are in the Facebook private group, you know, the you know, one of the topics was, you know, how do you meditate and how do you sit still and how do you you know, empty your mind and all these, you know, these questions that come up because there's that constant little um, to-do list that runs by or, or, you know, whatever thought pops into your head to distract you. And, you know, how do you move back into your center? Um, can I ask you what your mantra is? Uh, nope, you okay. can't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious. <laughs> you know, you just, you don't want one that is a word that is used anywhere in your vo- in, in in that's not in the dictionary. Okay. Because if if it was horse mm-hmm. and you were saying horse 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 over and over in your mind, mm-hmm. you would be you would be visualizing a horse. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, if you said blue blue blue, you'd be visualizing blue. You'd start thinking about blue. Like it should be something that has no meaning it's just a sound 
okay. just to sound so that your brain has a little something to do so that, you know, if you think of it kind of, you want when your thinking's going to take place, right? You're thinking your brain's a search engine. It's going to be thinking that's the only thing it can do. <laughs> it can't do anything else except think. So that's going to be going on somewhere, you know, that the, I feel like the mantra just kind of keeps you grounded. Cause if you're just, if you're doing a breathing meditation and you're really relaxing, you might stop thinking. But my guess is when you've stopped thinking, you just stop being conscious of the fact that you're thinking because you've fallen asleep. <laughs> Sleeping is not meditating. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm writing I mean, this down. It's such, a, it's such a simple thing. And people make, well, you know, addicts, like, you know, if you get clean and you're out of things to hate yourself over, join a gym and tell yourself you're going to go five days a week and then don't. And then you'll get to pay someone money every month for a membership that just gives you a whole new thing to beat yourself up over every day <laughs> that you don't go. Right. So like with meditation, when people are like, I mustn't be doing this right. I'm still thinking da, 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 da. I mean, it's just like then you're, it's just like another whipping stick. It's like all of these things are just they're supposed to be building your shock absorbers. <laughs> right. Not being something new to like be angry at yourself over for not being perfect. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, we've got the meditation. I think we've got the meditation side. Uh, plenty of information there. So thank you, Patty, on that. That's a new insight, even for me, because, uh, you know, I, I, I need to constantly be vigilant about how important it is to meditate and, and how beneficial it is. It's 100% true. When I've practiced over months at a time it makes a difference but then things get better and then phew, i go on with my life and conveniently forget to to meditate and and uh i feel it i feel it so uh word to the wise well you know the thing with like you were asking me about when i'm doing a job if it's intensive and I'm, i don't have my own life how do i how do i what is my self-care routine and how do i deal with not getting to do it or getting to do it or having to modify it is that, you know, these things just become part of your life. Like you, you don't, it kind of like the steps if you're, you know, in a program, mm -hmm. like after time, you know, at first you have to remind yourself and you have to be like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, write my staff or I'm going to go to the gym. And you just really have to remind yourself because it's not new and it kind of goes against everything that the disease doesn't want you to do right yes <laughs> right because it all supports recovery mm -hmm. and so but once you build the habit and it's been going for a while it's just a habit it's not that hard if you get pulled away for a week you return to it right you know it's just like it takes time to build a habit absolutely and and, and we don't really build our habits by like being mean to ourselves for <laughs> not being perfect about it you know, like when people get clean and they're like, I'm going to quit smoking sugar, white flour. I'm going to go to the gym five days a week. I'm going to run three miles a day. I'm going to meditate 40 minutes. And you're just like, just be happy if you can get to a meeting every day for 90 days. Like, just keep it there. <laughs> Life is long. You can get to all this other stuff. You will. Yes. Yes. Easy does it. 
But, you know, I mean, I can laugh about it because I was exactly like that, except, you know, I was like, I'm going to smoke until I can't smoke anymore. Uh, Drink coffee till I, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not giving that stuff up as a newcomer. But I meet people that as newcomers are like, I'm giving up everything, anything that comes between me and God. (laughs) Like, we get pillows to land on. It takes a lot to land back into your body. Yes. If it's too painful, you won't be able to handle it. Like, I don't know how much trauma you had, but you might need a few cushions to get comfortable. It's a long ride. Right, right, right. All right. Well, um, let's let's move on a little bit here because we still got a ways to go. Um, So tell us um, how old you were the first time you drank or used drugs and more importantly, how they made you feel. I was 12. I took acid. Um, I loved the idea that I was someone who was about to take acid. So there was a little bit of a pose involved. Like it was like in my eyes, I was cooler just because I was going to do it and right. had nothing to do with the high. And as soon as I felt the high, I was um, wondering when I was going to get to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering that while I was on that eight-hour trip. (laughs) When do I get to do this again? I want to feel like this every day. So that was kind of how it started. At 12 years old. Yes. Wow, powerful. And how much clean time do you have, and when's your anniversary date? Uh, My anniversary is December 10th, 1988. So we're at 28 or 29 years? I guess it's like 28 and a half now. Long time. Wow, that's amazing. I've been clean half of my life. That's awesome. Isn't that crazy? That is beautiful. Beautiful. All right. So, Patty, you're, you're all warmed up. So, this is what it's time. It's time for you to, sh- to share your story, uh, the battle with drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom, and then finally, your journey into recovery. So, Patty, take it away. Oh, my gosh. Well, like I said, I... I started getting high when I was 12 and I got clean when I was 28. You know, at the time I totally believed I was getting high because I was a free spirit and a risk taker and uh, I was up for the adventure and I wanted new experiences. Now that's all true. That's all absolutely true. But you know, the other side of it is that, um, I had a lot of feelings in my childhood that I didn't get to express. I didn't know what they were. Um, I didn't feel emotionally safe. I knew I was loved. I knew I was physically safe, but I didn't feel emotionally safe on the inside. I mean, that's, I think, pretty common with most people who are addicts, whether, you know, whether there's trauma, whether there's not trauma. I didn't have any real sense of who I was. Like I thought I knew who I was, but I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. And I would, um, you know, you only have your house as a kid to, um, measure what's normal. You never question what's normal until you go to somebody else's house for dinner after school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the whole, and the whole family is sitting down to dinner and they're all talking with each other like about all kinds of things and you're thinking 
are they just doing that because I'm here? Because <laughs> I feel like we only do stuff like that if we have company. Other words, it was like a TV tray down. Yeah, see ya. I'm going to watch TV. Bring my TV tray downstairs. Um, yeah, my mom eating alone because my dad didn't make it home for dinner, which means he's out drinking, which is like, you know, my anxiety would start on Wednesday about payday on Friday. Like, what's going to happen? You know, how... Like, is it going to be all the things we planned or is it going to be a lot of hostility in the house? And like I go to sleep and wake up at my aunt's or wake up at a neighbor's or, you know, I was always being carried to the car. (laughs) So because my dad would come home and want to play music really loud (laughs) because he was drunk and he was like, whatever, 27. This is my house. And if I want to play Johnny Cash, I can play Johnny Cash. Oh, <laughs> and, man. But Patty, Patty has school in the morning. And I was such a good, you know, I had such good grades. School was really easy for me. And they were kind of blown away because I had the kind of grades that like they didn't know where I came from. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so protecting my sleep so that my life would be normal. So I wouldn't be late for school and I wouldn't be tired for school. The solution was like, pick me up put me in the backseat of the car and take me somewhere where I, where there won't be like loud music and then get me up and to school on time. So, you know, my childhood, I was like waking up different places, (laughs) but on the outside, like I was at school on time and I had good grades. Right. So, um, and I was an only child, so I had nobody to talk about any of this with. So when I'd be at a friend's house and they'd all be having a leave it to beaver kind of dinner experience, I just thought they've got to be putting me on. People don't look like this. So, you know, so I had all that stuff and, you know, and then puberty and then my dad got sober when I was um, 10 and it was a different household. It was just a completely different household. Like we had, my mom had taken me and we moved out and my dad ended up going to rehab and instead of getting divorced, they got back together. So in this new household, the solution was we're never going to talk about the past because all that stuff is sad and we don't want to do anything that's going to get dad drinking again. Mm. And that really was like, um, the best that had been suggested or that my mom came up with. But you know what that meant was I'm 11 years old and I can't ask questions about the past. And now I'm in this different family (laughs) and, uh, that's like got this weird stability that feels really, anxiety producing for me to be in a house that's like really stable and quiet. Right. I just wasn't, I wasn't, I, nothing was familiar and I couldn't ask questions. And then the announcement was um, that I was going to have a brother or sister. And I, and I just was like, good. Cause I'm already on acid and I don't want you guys to be able to follow me. This will give me more freedom. That was all I thought of, you know, the big announcement about you're going to have like your first sibling. And I didn't even care because I was already on my way. I just knew that it meant that they wouldn't be able to, you know, keep the leash as tight on me. And, uh, you know, and so I, I used and, you know, all that stuff that goes with it was like, I didn't experience puberty. My mother was really, um, 
always kind of asking me because I guess she knew puberty was like a difficult time. Adolescence was a difficult time. She probably had done as much research as was possible back in that time. You know, she knew that to make sure I don't drink because I could probably become an alcoholic because my father was an alcoholic. They knew that much in 1972. Um, but they knew that adolescence was difficult. <laughs> But it wasn't difficult for me because I had a way to control my feelings. <laughs> you know, my sponsor's daughter, I remember when she was 13, I thought, what a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> She'd been such a cute kid at 12 and at 13, she was just this stuck up little bitch. And I was just like, oh, my God, how did she turn into a valley girl? But I kept my mouth shut. And then a year later, she was totally cool again. And so I told my sponsor, I go, wow, she, you know, I didn't want to tell you, but she was just like this little bitch last year. She goes, she was in puberty. I go, were we like that? She goes, we were on drugs. Who knows what we So, you know, I, I bypassed a lot of things that would have been um, uncomfortable, emotionally uncomfortable or difficult um, phases of growing up. But, you know, I mean, I, what I know now is that all of those things help human beings to gain coping skills and mature emotionally. And when you have coping skills, emotional coping skills and maturity, you don't need to find something to change your feelings <laughs> because your feelings aren't unbearable or unknown, or mysteriously scary, you know, white noise, vibrational energy that's like, you know, tormenting you in the privacy of your own mind, like you don't have that if you are, you know, developing <laughs> coping skills right. that happen between, you know, 12 and, and 25. But if you're high, you don't really have a need to develop those skills. So you don't. So when you get clean, you don't have those skills. <laughs> so recovery ends up being about building those skills, right? So I kind of bypassed a lot of a lot of things. Like I, I figured out that um, if I got stoned with the stoners, they just respected me and didn't try to make out with me. Mm. So I didn't have to deal with what's going to happen if they want a good night kiss because that just seemed horrifying. I mean, that still seems horrifying to me. I don't think I've ever. <laughs> dated like a normal person dates but you know because I didn't have those experiences because it was just easier to get high with someone and right. build that bond you know so I learned how to bond with people in a completely different way so I bypassed like a lot of normal life stuff like we do you know and then you get clean and it's like an altered experience <laughs> You get clean and you're like, this must be what taking acid would be like for the first time for an adult. <laughs> <laughs> because everything, everything was like bizarre, you know. So so my using went on. I had a marriage and I had a career and I, I would have things and I'd lose things. But in youth, it doesn't matter because you get things back because youth and beauty goes a long way. And the resilience and and the consequences were just part of the adventure, you know. And I did a lot of things that weren't driven by desperation of using as much as curiosity 
you know, and I moved to New York when I was 18 and moved into the Chelsea Hotel and it was punk rock and it was like Sid and Nancy and that whole thing. And I knew everyone and was part of everything. And it was really fun. And I felt like I'd arrived, which was a really unusual goal to arrive to, um, you know, being a heroin addict in New York City. But <laughs> it was on my bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, because I liked the Velvet Underground and, and I, you know, and I liked Keith Richards and I liked, like, my, all these ideas of um, what would make me okay based on who I admired for different reasons. It wasn't that I admired different artists and, and writers and stuff because of the drugs they took. I admired the, the work they did, but the drugs they took were easier for me than to do the work of being a writer. <laughs> right. It was easier to just be around artists than to be one. You know, so f from the beginning, there was this um, feeling of being a fraud because I knew inside the only thing that ever had mattered to me was to be writing. I knew from an early age, and, um, and I knew it was something that was really effortless for me, but really satisfying. It was something I always... You know, I mean, definitely since I was 20 had had it was like what I was saying I was like, I'm a writer, <laughs> but I wouldn't really write anything because drugs are a full time activity, you know, and uh, but I was around I was surrounded by people who I was surrounded by a lot of people who changed, changed the face of culture at that time that's still influencing it now if that makes any sense. You were with some real artists, some people that were that are famous, that were making moves and changes and were making a difference in the culture. Except then they weren't famous. They were just doing their thing. I mean, they became famous later or during that time, but they didn't start out that way. But they had the goods, you know. So I was around a lot of interesting people having interesting conversations, learning things, you know, I was kind of shy, so I would um, be listening, you know, so it was, it was an education. And then I realized I had no education. So I went back to Canada and got into and went back to school. And then I, uh, I, I mean, I didn't know I had ADD. So when I'm really passionate about something, I'm fully engaged. And when I'm no longer super excited by something, if it doesn't engage me, I'm bored easily and I lose interest. So, you know, a lot of things start out really challenging and then I nail it really quickly. And then there's three more years and what am I going to do? This is killing me. Right. <laughs> this is not challenging. It's not interesting. I don't have the patience. How do people endure this? Like there's other things I should be doing right now. So it was always really hard for me having follow through. Yeah. And not because things were difficult. Like if things were easy, it was hard to have follow through. Yeah, it's just hard to have follow through when um, when the thing you love the most is getting high. It's really hard to you know, to convince the person you're married to or you're in love with that like you love them more than drugs because deep down you know that's not true. Uh. So then you feel like, am I really that shallow? Does this person matter at all? I know they do, but do they really? I feel indifferent. Why is that? You know, and then, yeah, so then that relationship collapses and that person's gone. And, and, you know, that's when I realized, oh, no, I really did love them. I just like was powerless, like drugs had to come first. 
but it's too hard as an addict to be able to see the truth in that, you know, that drugs come before family, drugs come before partners, drugs come before your dreams, drugs come before everything at a certain point, you know, and, and you might, I might have known it somewhere deep inside, but that was just too painful to acknowledge because to acknowledge it would mean maybe I should do something about it. And I wasn't there yet. So instead, um, when my husband was gone, I abandoned myself into drugs like I never had before. Mm. Like I'd always tried to keep it together. Yes. You know, I always had an audience that I had to present that I was someone who could handle heroin. You don't have to worry about me. Like, but when I didn't have, I removed myself from everyone. So without an audience to perform that I'm not an addict for, I just, I moved to California. I said goodbye to my family. And before I got to the end of the drive, end of the street in Canada, after saying goodbye to them and they're on the driveway waving, I knew that I was going to California to die. Oh. And I knew it. And I couldn't stop the car and turn around and ask for help. And that was one of the most, the saddest moments of my life. Because I knew that I might never see them again. But I, I knew I had to ride it out. Like in my mind, I thought you just have to ride this out. What I know now is that the disease was in charge and I did not have a choice. I did not have the choice to turn the car around because I was in the grip of the obsession and I couldn't stop. And that next year in California, living in abandoned buildings and, you know, I was in county hospital. They thought they were going to have to amputate my arm. I mean, horrible shit was happening. My car got impounded. I was in jail in Hawthorne. But I remember being in the hospital, and I had a temperature of 106. Oh. And they thought they were going to have to amputate my arm. And they told me where the payphone was. And I wasn't ready to call my parents because I'd been calling them from payphones, but because I wasn't a documented resident. Uh, there's another word for that, but, you know, I don't know how far this tape will go with the iron. <laughs> But at the time, you know, I was just a Canadian here. And so um, I would call my parents from payphones every week, and I'd just act like things were great, but that it was harder to get a phone in my name here in California compared to New York because they wanted more ID because of Mexico. You know, I mean, so my mom's like, oh, okay. So they had no idea how much I was suffering, like none. Right. And so when I was in the hospital, I wasn't ready to call them because I didn't want to put them through the truth of my life. And uh, so I was in the hospital. I'd been out in L.A. for a year, and there really wasn't anybody I could call to tell them I was in the hospital. And when I got out, I took the bus back to the abandoned building, and somebody had moved into my spot. I could tell somebody had been in there, and I knew it wasn't safe. <laughs> so uh, I, I put my belongings in a box, and I had my hospital bracelet on, and I took the bus. Oh, my God. And I got off the bus, and it was nighttime. And uh, someone, I was dancing by the airport. I don't know if you remember Nude Nudes Nudes Plus. Yes, by yes, I, uh, I, uh, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was working there. Maybe oh. I danced for you when you were 18. <laughs> 
But I was working there and somebody like a guy who went in there all the time who was pretty harmless. He had like a a studio apartment for rent in Venice um, on the away from the beach, away from Lincoln, going the other direction around Rose and Lincoln. Okay. And, uh, you know, it was really, it was like maybe 300 a month or something. It's a little furnished studio. So he said I could move in. So I'd already had that set up before I went to jail and, and the hospital and all that stuff. So I was on the bus and the bus driver dropped me off. Um, I had to change buses somewhere. I'd never taken the bus in LA, but they'd impounded my car. And uh, I just thought it would be like New York. So I'm sitting at a bus stop and then a car comes up and it's my bus driver. He'd finished his shift and he realized there was no bus. So he <laughs> drove me to drove me to Lincoln Boulevard so I could get a bus there. So I'm waiting for a bus there. And then a van comes and asks me if I need a ride. And at that point, I'm thinking maybe there are no buses, right? Mm-hmm. So I get in the van and... As I'm riding, I realize I'm in like some kind of crazy serial killer van. And this guy is completely nuts. Like I just know it in my bones. Like my bones have always, I mean, I have, I've been in so many situations where I could have been killed or raped or whatever. And somehow like I, I sense it and I've been able to like think fast, talk my way for whatever reason. I'm just lucky I've never been a victim of any kind of violence which is pretty amazing considering Yeah. in this van. I just thought you're going to die if you don't get out of here. So I, I don't know what I said. I'm like, you know, I start playing him up like, Oh, you know, like maybe we could get some beer and I need some cigarettes. And I had the money and he's like, Oh yeah, we could party. And he pulls into the Seven Eleven and he goes in to buy me cigarettes. And I just grab my box of stuff and I, I leave and I'm running down Lincoln Boulevard <laughs> And then this group of gangbangers across the street divide up and get in front of me and behind me, and they're going to park it at the corner of, of Brook and uh, and Lincoln. By now, it's like two thirty in the morning, and I go into the store and I tell the woman at the cashier, I go, I ask someone who's paying, I go, you know, I've been followed, and I think, you know, I'm in a lot of danger, and I just live a block away, but I'd have to walk down this street past all these parking garages and. I was wondering if you could give me a ride. I'm really not trying to like get anything from me. I just want to save my life. And people were looking at me like I was some crazy homeless person, which I must have looked like with my hospital bracelet on and, and my box. box. <laughs> but they looked out the window and they saw these nine kids sitting there waiting for me. So uh-huh. they gave me a ride to my house. Like that was what my life was like before recovery. Like every day was like that in some way or another. Wow. My God, it's like a war zone. It was crazy. <laughs> Absolute insanity. But that was when I gave up. That was when I was just like, fuck it. I'm not even going to try to control my using because what's the point? I always feel myself anyway. I'm just like, just go with it. And then, you know, I mean, long and short, I ended up at NA World Convention in Anaheim. I'd lost everything. I kind of heard the message, but I wasn't ready. I saw people that were from Hollywood NA. They looked like people I would have hung out with in any situation. Uh-huh. And uh, I hooked up with some guy with 90 days clean. And 
He moved me into a little motel near his sober living. <laughs> and uh, I met him at the convention. And what, what the thing with him is halfway through the convention, I realized that I used to cop dope off of him down on Spring Street. And he looked completely different. Mm. And I tried to get him to take me to cop because, you know, I had no recovery. I'd done a 21-day methadone detox, shot 21 grams of crystal. And that's how I ended up in jail in Hawthorne because I lost my mind. But, you know, I didn't have a habit at that point. And I was trying to get him to get me to cop. And I was doing every little girly trick on how much foam we'd have together if we were loaded. And he wanted to stay clean more than he wanted to get loaded with me. And that blew my mind. Like, yeah. you know, that really... And I must have been making them nuts, you know. I was just like, just take me to the liquor store then. I mean, <laughs> poor guy. Yeah. But he said, Patty, I don't know how to say this to you. Because I'm really embarrassed that I'm going to sound super uncool and that you won't respect me. He goes, but why don't you just pray for the obsession to be removed and see what happens? But it was the way he prefaced it yeah. made me even hear that he said that, you know. So instead, I got on a plane and went back to New York for like the worst six, pray for the obsession to be removed. And I go out and cop and the place would be closed. And I think, huh, that works. And then I'd want to use again. I'd pray for the obsession to be removed. I'd go try to cop and it would be closed. And I'd go, wow, it works. <laughs> and then I, I, I feel like getting high and I pray for the obsession to be removed. And yeah, this is like the 40th time in an hour I've gone to see if the spot's open and it was open and I got loaded. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I ended up like within a few weeks, I, I was just, I knew that I'd never been willing to go to any lengths to stay clean, that I'd, the few meetings I'd attended, I saw that it, people were clean. I believe they were clean. And I modified what I was willing and not willing to do. And I'd never really tried. And I thought, you know, you are going to die if you don't try this. But, like, really try it. And, you know, and so when I entered recovery, I really, um, I approached it. I'd never tried to do anything as hard as I tried to do this. Like, if I'd applied myself in school in career, in anything, the way I applied myself in my first year of recovery, my whole life would have been different. Right. <laughs> like if I could get some of that energy to apply to some of the projects I'm working on right now, I'd have, you know, <laughs> but it was life and death and I just gave it everything. I followed every suggestion I went to two or three meetings a day. Like I was, I was willful. I did a lot of things I wanted to do, but I had no secrets. And um, beyond a doubt, like I did not put anything before my recovery. Like I never took it for granted. I always felt like, you know, if just because I have X amount of months clean doesn't mean it's a guarantee. Like I can't ease up. I can't have the answers for myself yet. You know, I believe that at a time I'd be able to have, um, be able to trust myself more, you know, instead of being completely questioning whether every thought I had was wrong. You know, how you go through that whole thing in early recovery, like is every 
thing I think, a lie. <laughs> Absolutely. You can't trust yourself at all. And, you know, you're like, I just, you know, I want to, I want to get laid, but is that going to get me loaded? Like, you just don't even know what to do. <laughs> you're asking everybody, like, should I phone him? Like, you can't make any decision. You know, like, if I have too much fun, will I get loaded? Like, everything's like this big, crazy drama. That's what I meant earlier when I said, you know, you get clean and because you never get those coping skills, you're like the kid at a high school dance who's like trying to act cool, but you're invites you to coffee so you don't die. Like, you know, but you can't say, could you invite me to the meeting? Because I have two days clean and I'm terrified of myself. Instead, you stand there trying to look cool like you have somewhere to go. <laughs> but you're like lonely as hell and desperate that you're not, you know cool enough or pretty enough or funny enough or, you know, whatever enough that people in the meetings will talk to you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like man. going self security, it's so painful. And and part of your brain going, This is insane. You're not you've never been this person. <laughs> What's happening to you? You know, but like so it's just this whole this whole um crazy period in early recovery where how you're feeling and the self-obsession and insecurity is so insane and the self-doubt is so insane. And then the other part that's going, there's nothing in your history that shows that you were ever this person. This might not be real, <laughs> but you're afraid to like trust that voice. So you're just like, what do I do? I just glued myself to people. I just, you know, really um, just believed that no matter how smart I knew myself to be, and I really have never doubted my own intelligence. I knew that I did not know how to stay clean. We're not even talking about getting clean, but I did not know how to stay clean. And the people who were clean knew how. And I just had to let them show me. And I could never think that I was the one who knew how because I had no experience in staying clean. And and that kind of willingness and humility I don't know where the hell that came from. Like, I don't know if that was a spiritual awakening. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. But just, you know, I was, I, I had that moment of truth. I'd never been willing to go to any length. And I needed to let people help me. And that, that I didn't talk myself out of that with the next breath is pretty amazing. Wow. Patty, your story is so impactful, so powerful. It's so gripping. I mean, I'm right there. I'm from L.A. So you remember when that movie Colors came out? That's when I was living in Venice Beach. It was just gangbangers. That was it. There was no fancy restaurants. No, absolutely not. Where was, where was the abandoned place you were living again? That was at Crenshaw and 8th Street. <laughs> Crenshaw? There's nothing but crime going on in Crenshaw, you know, especially at that time. In 87, that was like 87, 88. It was crazy. It was crazy. And I'd come from, I'd come from like having an art direction job at like one of the coolest nightclubs in New York <laughs> and being in a monogamous marriage. And yeah, and, and then I was like stripping at the April's Cabaret in the Valley and living at Raji's hotel. Unbelievable. I was at Raji's before I uh, before I hit the abandoned building. It definitely paints the cautionary tale behind drugs and alcohol starting at such an early age just snowballing into this absolute 
uh, disaster. Um, but then here we are today, almost 30 years later, clean, recovery coach, and just you know somebody that is helping with so much experience, helping the newcomer, helping those that need it the most. Uh, and that's what that's what our life purpose is today. So, um, which is which segues into the close of the show, which is for the newcomer. So, I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery, and I want you to respond with inspiring answers you can share with the newcomers. Are you ready? Okay. Let's rock and roll. So, number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Fear. My entire identity was built up. I knew who I was. I knew what I had using. It was my longest relationship. It was my relationship to drugs. The idea of complete abstinence was beyond my comprehension. Absolutely. Absolutely. And number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery, when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? Well, I I feel lucky because, like I told you at the end of my using, like when I was able to get honest with myself that I needed to be completely willing, that was it. You know, it was when I realized that there there was that getting clean was my only hope. And if I didn't give it everything I got, that I would not, I didn't think I'd ever get another chance to get clean. And I did, I and uh, and that happened before I got clean. And my spiritual awakening in recovery, like the really deep one, because there were millions, like I could have been one of those people who had, you know, a bumper sticker that said, I am a miracle if I've been corny enough. <laughs> but, um, but in recovery, like long into recovery, is um, really realizing one day that I wasn't worried about shit anymore that even when things felt a little scary and uncertain i i know beyond a doubt that i'm going to be okay that took a while to come like where i could have said it earlier but like where i really believe it like where i really don't trip out obsessively worrying about shit that that's like a gift of long-term recovery Absolutely. and that was spiritual definitely a spiritual awakening that it had actually happened. <laughs> that is amazing. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, so number three, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? Um, in early recovery, I could not read a page of a book and know what I'd read. So in early recovery, my reading skills, my attention, my brain was just fried. I could not, my stress levels was too high. I couldn't even, if I had to read a preamble, I'd mess it up. <laughs> um, but a book that I think is really unlike all the junkie books that like I know I've read and I know if you're a junkie and you're getting clean, you want to read the permanent midnights and stuff. But a book that really is amazingly well written with a lot on the recovery side is Lit by Mary Carr. Hmm. Lit by Mary Carr. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. That's a new one. Beautiful. We need we need a new one. Yeah, no, it's really, she's great. She's a great writer. She's been sober a long time. She wrote The, the, uh, the Liars Club, 
Her <laughs> life was crazy. But this has a lot to do, you know, I mean, I don't really identify with her drinking part of her story, but I identify with the feelings she writes about in her book. Mm-hmm. And her, her, she's an amazing, you know, writer. And um, But she talks a lot about recovery in it. Beautiful. And what that whole experience was and coming to believe in all of that. Excellent, excellent. All right. And so what is the best way for our listeners to reach out to you and find you? I have a website, pattypowersnyc.com, Patty with a Y. I'm on Twitter. I do a, a online event. It's called Sex Talk. It's the first Sunday of the month on In the Rooms at 9 p.m. It's free. It's where people in recovery have an open discussion about their relationship to sex in sobriety. Um, we have guests speakers it's it's pretty cool and it's not x-rated and it's really helpful it's the first sunday of the month usually and if it's not um if you join my newsletter on my website i always send out something if i change the date right and it's at what time again 9 a.m 9 p.m eastern standard time 9 p.m est perfect all right i'm gonna put that on the show notes too that sounds cool i might have to check that out myself it's really cool I love it. I love it. Okay. Great suggestions, Patty. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.